Amen. Good morning. Um, again, Buddy Killian, one of the elders, uh, just doing my weekly uh, capital campaign report. Uh, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see uh, on the back page the capital campaign figures. Um, the matching campaign uh, came in at 24999 which uh, I thought was God just showing his sense of humor. Like, really? You're off by a dollar? So, but uh, Andrew, Andrew actually met me in the uh, foyer today, and he said that uh, after that report came out, another $5,000 came in. So, praise God. Uh, and thank you all for just being faithful and, 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 you know, taking your real finances and trusting God to help build and maintain his church. I think it's uh, pretty amazing. Um, when you add the, the uh, match in, uh, we're somewhere just a little bit south of $75,000. Our goal is 90000 We still have a few more weeks of the campaign, so there's still plenty of time to pray and give if you haven't been able to do that already. Um, but, uh, we're, we're close and getting, getting closer. And I just, I, I want to thank everybody who is here or who is online, who's, uh, chosen to, uh, trust us and, and, and donate their finances so we can get this work done. Thank you all very much. And to build up on that, uh, in talking with the folk that are going to install the boiler, we're probably inspect, expecting the week after Christmas, to have it installed so that we should be good for the winter. So, uh, and so again, kudos. I mean, I'm, I'm real excited, and uh, you guys, I'm really excited for the way you guys stepped up and, and matched the campaign. That's really cool, and it's cool to see where we are at this point. So God has been good. You've been faithful. Thank you. Well, we're starting a new series, and we're kind of looking at the looking at the prequels, and we're looking at stories that precede the story of Christmas, but stories that lead to the story of Christmas. We're going to look at a few individuals, and this week we're going to be looking at Tamar. And if you remember where Tamar is, she's way back in Genesis, and this is Judah, Tamar, and and, and the things that surround their lives. But that's where we're going to start. Next week, we're going to have a different story. But things that lead to and build up to the story of Christmas and things that build to and lead up to Jesus coming and the things that tell the story about why Jesus came. So I'm looking forward to this. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Father, I thank you for the time you give us this morning. And Father, time to be in your word. Father, time to think about the things that are said here, things that challenge us. Father, guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't think this is on the screen, but we start out in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. This is what we read. It said, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and then Perez fathered Hezron, and on you go. What I want you to see is that these guys are named in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. When we come to the scriptures, when we come to the Bible, the Bible tells a series of stories. Now, what's, here's what's interesting. Each story has a purpose. Every single one. 
So when you sit down and you start to read through the scriptures and you, and you, start, you start at Genesis, and it's kind of fun reading through Genesis and then you, you get up to the kings and you get to the judges and, and there's some very interesting stories. I mean, some of these stories are kind of like, what? This, and in fact, today, today's story is kind of like one of those kind of open your eyes, kind of make your hair stand a little bit on end. It's, it's one of those kind of stories. And the Bible is filled with some of those kinds of stories. And you kind of ask yourself at times, why did God tell this story? Because there's a bunch of different stories that could be told. Think about when you guys were young and your parents would sit around a dining room table or in the, the dining room or maybe you, you would go camping and it would be stories around the campfire or maybe you were before the time way back in the day and you did campfires outside, you know, and all that kind of stuff before the fire rings really kind of became popular. And you, you would hear the family stories. And you sometimes, you know, aren't often those stories the, the mischievous ones and the, or the dangerous ones or the scary ones? But you ask yourself sometimes, where did these stories come from and why are they telling these stories? God is telling a series of stories. But they have a purpose. Again, I would encourage you to look at Scripture. We looked at this Scripture before, and, I'm, and we're going to look at it again today. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may complete, equipped for every good work. And you come to the story of Judah and Tamar, and you come to some of the other stories that we read in Scripture, And we need to remember that these are stories that have been recorded by God. Scripture is inspired by God. These are stories, you know, God's not the editor in heaven. He gets the finished product and he's flipping through the pages. He goes, Michael, how did this story get in here? It's not going on. I mean... God's the editor. God is the one who's kind of overseeing the whole thing and he's, he's overseeing what's going to print. And these stories, as they are recorded, are stories that God intended to be there. Why? Because all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, for instruction, for training and preparation and righteousness. Why? So that you and I can be complete and equipped for every good work. Even kind of the scary stories, the hair-raising stories. So let's kind of start to talk about Tamar and Judah. I want you to recognize that as we read the story, we are starting to see, from what I can perceive, the first echoes of the kinsman redeemer. Now, to put it in context a little bit, when you hear Jesus and you see Jesus referred to as the redeemer, Sound familiar? Okay. That comes from the whole idea of kinsman redeemer. So when we think of Jesus as the redeemer, this is its roots. This is where it starts to come from. And we see the story and it starts to walk through the kinsman redeemer process. We're being introduced to it. And it's in the, the genealogy and it happens a couple of times in the genealogy story of Jesus. 
Let's pick up. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11, and then we're going to drop down to verses 27 to 30. Now, this is one of those earthy stories of Scripture. So as I read through, understand that. I'm just going to read. I won't comment a whole lot. But this is one of those challenging stories of Scripture. Back in the day, they used to have a shelf in the library. They put those more challenging and interesting books. And it's probably this story that this story and some other stories that probably got the Bible on that shelf at different times. I'm not sure if that shelf is still around in the, in the library anymore or not. But this would be one of those stories that would have gotten the, the Bible on that shelf. It says, that time Judah left his brothers. This is after they sold his brother into slavery. After that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near this city named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as his wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at... Oh boy, I hate the names of these cities. It's at this place that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, now Ur was Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce an offspring for your brother. This is the kinsman-redeemer role. Now, this is understood in the culture. Now, for us in our culture, we would go, back up. (laughs) Hold, 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 hold. I don't think this is going to happen. Okay? But this is a totally different culture. Okay? And the whole idea of the kinsman redeemer, and it was her brother's, it was Ur's brother's responsibility, the oldest, to redeem his lineage. It was his responsibility through his wife to produce a child, an offspring that would carry on his lineage, that would carry on his name, that would carry on his place. Now, I also think part of this, the world was not as populated. Now we wrestle with issues of population. Historically, at this point in time, there might have been hundreds of thousands of people, maybe a couple million people on the planet Earth. But not the billions of people that we experience today. So where did I drop off? Verse 9. So we'll pick up at verse 10. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Okay? It would not be his. It would be his, ultimately it would be his brother's. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released the semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Now there's more parts that happen to the story. 
Tamar gets pregnant, drop down to verse 27. We'll, we'll get to, the, to that process in a few minutes. It says this, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And, she was, and as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it. And they would do this if there's twins. And in Judah's family history, there was twins. And so they did this so they could tell which one came out first. Because you figured if they're both coming out, they're both wrinkly, small, and crying, you might forget which one came first. Okay, so they want to keep track. He put his hand out, waved, and then pulled it back. And so she tied a thread around it, announcing this one came out first, but then he pulled his hand back. And out came his brother and said, what a break What a breakout you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who was, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and he was named Zerah. Now here's what I part of want you to see in the whole process of kinsman redeemer journey. Ur was the oldest. He was the oldest, but he died before he had any children. Therefore, Tamar needed, Tamar, when she has her child, it's a, kids, it's a kinsman redeemer situation. Perez now is in line with his father. And Perez is the one in line to receive the inheritance and the promise as the firstborn because of the kinsman redeemer process. Now, here's some things that stand out with the kinsman-redeemer process. For a kinsman-redeemer situation to take place, the kinsman-redeemer needs to be kin. Needs to be family. He can't knock on your daughter's, your, your neighbor's door and say, Hey, could you guys do us a favor? Not kin. Not kin. They need to be related. It needs to be kin. That's how come Tamar married her brother, her her brother-in-law. Because he was kin. Now, again, not the cultural framework we would like. We don't necessarily want our siblings picking our future spouse. Okay? But, in this culture, in this environment, that's part of what was taking place. The Redeemer reclaims. They restore that which is lost. What was lost? In this account and in this situation, what is lost is heir's position and standing in his family. What is lost is the inheritance of the firstborn son. What is lost is the the genealogical connection point weaving through time and history. It was Onan's responsibility to redeem that for his brother. And he chose not to. 
That brings us to the next part of that conversation. A kinsman redeemer must be willing to redeem what is lost. They must be willing to do that. In a little bit, in two weeks, we're going to look at Ruth and Boaz. And as we look at the story with Ruth and Boaz, there was another kinsman redeemer that was closer than Boaz. And they would go to that person and he would say no. And he would say no because from his worldview, from his perspective, it would confuse inheritance. It would confuse things that were going on. But Onan chose not to provide an heir for his brother because of what the text said. Because he knew the child would not be his own. And again, as I'm saying, the kinsman redeemer produces a new heir. Can I, can I ask you a question? Thinking theologically, who's, if you're a follower of Jesus, whose children are we? We're the children of God. But we are redeemed by Jesus. See, we're not the children of Jesus. Because Jesus was the Redeemer. We have become the children of God. Because positionally, that position has been redeemed. And prior to the redeeming work of Jesus, we were not the children of God. Rather, we were alienated from God. We were far from God. We were enemies of God. But Jesus redeemed us. And our position of relationship, our position of sonhood, of childhood, was restored. Now, this is a really important theme. And we look at this and we go, ooh, I don't like this whole thought process, at least as it's being presented here. We're going to get to, go, get to Ruth and Boaz, and it's kind of a cool story, but when we read it here, it's kind of like, it doesn't kind of have maybe a little bit of that ickiness to it, at least from our worldview, but in their culture, all of this was normal. All of this was normal. But the whole idea of kinsman redeemer is huge. And it's being introduced because it's such an important doctrinal thing for us to understand because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Now, it'd be nice if we could just read those first two parts, but there's stuff in the middle that we need to read. So let's go to the next part. Because this is one of the other things that stands out to me. Jesus has a depraved genealogy. He just has a depraved genealogy, a wicked genealogy. Let's continue and let's kind of go back to some of the story that we jumped over. We'll start again at verse 11 and we'll go down to verse 24. So then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, 
Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brother. So Tamar went to live at her, in her father's house. And, and Judah sends her away, never expecting her to ever marry a son, his youngest. It's not going to happen. As far as Judah is concerned, this is not going to happen. The kinsman-redeemer process stops here. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went to Timnah. To, I, I love it when they have all these names and locations. To his sheep shears. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Naim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she, for she saw that though Shelah had, had grown up, he had not been given to her as, his wife, as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will, I will send you a young goat from my flocks, he replied. But she said, only if you're leaving something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. The whole negotiation process going on. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And she got up and left, then removed her veil and put on her widow's clothes back on. And when Judah, went, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Edelomite, in order to get back the items he left with the woman, he could not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the, the cult prostitute who was beside the road to Enam? And they had, there had been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Edulamite returned to Judah saying, I could not find her. And besides the men of the place said, there, was, there has been no cult prostitute here. Then Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, when she, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send the young goat, but you could not find her. Judah replied, okay, and about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute. Now she, has been, now she is pregnant. And he says, bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. Now again, It's about this point in time when you say, why does God include these stories in the Bible? From my worldview, partially from the way I approach things, I've got to be honest with you, this is, from my vantage point, one of the uglier stories that the Bible tells. There's some other really ugly stories, but this is among the ugly stories. There is profound dysfunction, and chaos in Jesus' genealogy. Now, I find this really interesting. God does not sanitize the story. It's just really interesting to me that he does not do that. God takes the circumstances, God takes the reality of things as they really happened, and he tells a story. And he does not pull punches. 
He does not hide or shade things to make it look better. It's a really ugly story, and he tells it as the ugly story really is ugly. He doesn't hide. He doesn't avoid. For me, that's really interesting because that doesn't fit the norm. It doesn't fit the picture of what people would tend to want to do. People would tend to want to sanitize the story. People would want to tend to clean it up to make themselves look better. But here's part of the reality. God is not defined by the story of Judah and Tamar. God is not defined by that. And in fact, Jesus is not defined by that story. In fact, what's really, really cool, Jesus isn't defined by, defined by his genealogy at all. Because Jesus is one who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. But when you listen, listen to this story, and you look, listen to the things that are taking place, there's all sorts of deceit. There's all sorts of lack of cultural ethic. There's all sorts of evil, vile behavior taking place. But God isn't defined by the story. And Jesus isn't defined by the story. My great-grandfather was a drunk. He was a drunk. Now, it's interesting, his father was a preacher. But my great-grandfather was a drunk. My grandfather watched his father live as a drunk And he said, I'm not going to do that. But his brother was a drunk. Functional, but a drunk. I think I told you this story, but a number of years ago when we lived in Pittsburgh, we weren't making much money, so you look for those opportunities to maybe make a little extra cash. And one of the local colleges was doing a sleep study. And they were going to pay you a thousand bucks to do a sleep study. Oh, yeah. I was like, I would do that today. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll let you sleep on their sofa or their, their bed. They'll put wires to you and see how your brain waves work, and they'll let you do that. And Joan and I were not making as much as we would like to have made, so we signed up, and we both said, we're going to do this. Well, they want to know your family history. And as they're going through our family history, they discovered that my dad would drink till he passed out drunk. And so they said, you know, we don't think we're going to use you. Joan didn't have that problem. <laughs> they still did a sleep study with Joan, but they didn't do that with, with me. Because my dad, when he was younger, would drink till he passed out drunk. Now, his life got changed, and he came to know Jesus, and his life was transformed. And I don't remember him as, 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 as a kid growing up. I don't remember my dad drinking. But that was part of his genealogy. That was part of his life. But again, that hasn't defined my story. Now, do I 
understand the story? Do I know the story? Absolutely. Now, for me, some of, some of my response to those things is, I've never been drunk in my life. I made a decision to never, ever, ever get drunk. Because I look at my family history, I look at my family heritage, and I see the devastation and the destruction that flows from my family story because of alcohol. And I've said to myself, I don't need to repeat that in my life. They had such an ugly, ugly family. Now again, all of this is flowing on the heels of what? Selling Joseph into slavery. Then when you talk, when some of you guys say, I've come from a dysfunctional household, you don't have anything to compare to some of the dysfunction that is in Jesus' genealogy. But Jesus' genealogy does not define him. And I would suggest to you that your genealogy does not need to define you either. It doesn't need to define you. One more thing stands out. Echoes of justice, but with a twist. Echoes of justice, but with a twist. Genesis 38, verses 24 to 26. Again, we saw this about three months later. Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them, whose signet ring cord and staff are these Judah recognized him and said she is more righteous more in the right than I since I did not give her to my son Selah and he did not know her intimately again and so she came into his household she came into his home and the boys came with her but she did not have relations with him as a a wife ever ever again Now, here's what stands out to me. Judah had an obligation to err, his oldest son. But he chose to disregard it. He chose to disregard it. He took initial steps to address it. He took initial steps to resolve the issues of the kinsman redeemer situation. But when it didn't work out with his son Onan, he backed away. He tried to send Tamar off, dust his hands off from her, put her in her father's household, and walk away. But he chose to walk away from his obligations to his son. Judah intended to abandon Tamar, stealing from her both her place of identity and security. In this culture, Tamar was going to be defined by one of two key areas, who her father was or who her husband was. That's just the reality of the culture. And her place of security 
was in who she married and her of having kids and, and the, the heritage and history that would come through her kids. Judah decided to take that away from her and he said, it's not necessary. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to provide for her in that way. I'm, putting, I'm dismissing that. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing Tamar away. Now, from a twisted and corrupt flow of events, God allowed justice to be brought. Now, I don't think many of us would say to our daughter, um, to resolve the issues and to find justice, put on a veil, practice a round of prostitution, and find justice that way. I don't think most of us would say to our daughters, that's the way to go about things. But that's exactly what she did. But that also, what, spoke to Judah's character. It really didn't speak to Tamar's character. It spoke a whole lot more to Judah's character. Tamar was seeking to find the kinsman redeemer. Tamar was seeking to find that which she was owed by Judah. She was seeking justice. She was seeking to be treated fairly. From a twisted and kind of corrupt flow of events, God brought about justice for Tamar. God brought about justice for Ur. And God brought about a kinsman redeemer. And that's the whole significance of the story. The place and the role of a kinsman redeemer. Now, am I suggesting that when we do stuff wrong, then God's going to put a stamp of approval on it? I'm not suggesting that. But things worked out in a way that brought glory and honor to God, and their things worked out in a way that communicated the story that we need to understand about the role of a kinsman redeemer and the reality also that Perez and Judah are part of Jesus' genealogy. When you sit there and read in Matthew, there they are. I am told that Rob Roy is part of my family history. Kind of interesting. A murderer and a thief. Part of my family history. I'm told that my name is Brown. Because the McGregors, which would be my family name, had to change their name. Because the edict went out that said all McGregors needed to be hung because apparently they were horse thieves. So they changed their name to Brown. That's, those are the stories I've been told around the campfire. Those are the stories I've been told about my family history and heritage. Now, they're interesting stories, but they're also stories of scoundrels and derelicts and really not the kind of people that we want as neighbors. And they kind of are fun stories to tell as a story of genealogy, but we really wouldn't want to have them in our life. And Tamar, Judah, real stories about the history and heritage of Jesus. And they highlight that really important part to help us understand the need for a kinsman 
redeemer. One who would redeem us. One who would restore to us that which was lost and what we desperately need to be restored to our right relationship with God. Let's pray together. Father, I want to say thank you this morning for your amazing goodness and richness to us, for the various ways that you continue to pour out upon us your kindness, your love. Father, as we shift gears in life and shift gears in culture into this Christmas season, Father, I would ask that you would build into us a joy and an anticipation of what it is you're doing. Father, I would ask that we would see beyond the noise and commotion and we would see Jesus. And Father, and even as we pull out some of the stories of of Jesus' history and heritage, Father, allow us to see your hand at work in, in the way that you built the story and the things that are important for us to understand so that we can understand what it is you have done for us. You included the story to help us understand the role of the kinsman redeemer. Lord, it's amazing what you've done for us. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. So kinsman redeemer is a male relative who acted on the behalf of another who was in trouble and need. And all of scripture is pointing to how God provided a redeemer for you and me. Old Testament is pointing, I'm going to send a redeemer. And the New Testament is, the redeemer has come. He has died on your behalf so you can be forgiven with God forever. I am in need because I have rebelled against the one true holy God. Every single one of you here in person, watching online, we are all in great need because we have all rebelled against the one true holy God. But the same God who rebelled against provided a redeemer to save us and bring us to himself. The riches of his grace and mercy are amazing. And, and he works in such a way that we are saved not only from eternal punishment, but he gives us a new family. We can have a new history, a new life. He redeems even the messiest of peoples and the messiest of pasts. That is what God does through this Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And if you are here and have never believed in Jesus, know there is one true God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise again so you can be saved if you trust in him as your only savior. And if you have questions on that, talk to Pastor Andrew, talk to myself, one of the other elders. But if you are here and have believed in Jesus, you need to just be in awe of Jesus, our redeemer. It's so easy to just kind of get used to that idea. Oh, but let that not be true of you and me. He is our Redeemer who makes beauty out of messes. What we're going to do right now is we are going to worship. We're going to worship through song, but we're also going to worship through giving. So what's going to happen is the offering plates are going to come from the back forward. Um, If you feel led, you can give, but it's an opportunity for other people here 
in, in the New Jersey, Hans River, around the world can hear about this Redeemer. So as the plate passes you, let's stand and let us praise our, our Redeemer. Lord, I thank you that you have acted on my behalf despite my sin. God, I pray that if anyone here has not believed in you, that you would be working in their hearts, give them the humility and boldness to reach out to someone and ask, how can I be saved? Lord, for those who have believed in you, I pray you'll help us to constantly be in awe.